0: So, good morning. Uh, my name is Harry Strauss. I'm part of the uh, pastoral team here at Forest Grove. Uh, we have been gone most of the summer, and this is our first week back, our first uh, Sunday back here at Forest Grove. Uh, we had a wonderful summer in that we celebrated our youngest son and uh, his fiance's uh, birth uh, wedding on July the 16th. Boy, I got tongue tied there, and there was no birthday there, it was their wedding. <laughs> So we celebrated their wedding on July the 16th. Uh, We also celebrated our 40th uh, wedding anniversary on July the 30th. And we celebrated the 90th birthday for Judy's father, August Long Weekend, uh, which became a major family get-together in Eyebrow, Saskatchewan, for three or four days. So it was a summer of um, celebrations for us. Uh, and in the midst of this, I also had my birthday, which was largely eclipsed by everything else. And, uh, but uh, that's okay. That's uh, totally okay. Uh, the summer also provided added time for reading. And uh, one of the interesting books that I was able to look at uh, is a book about uh, TED Talks uh, and the growing popularity, influence, and impact of TED Talks written by Chris Anderson who is the primary architect and director and person behind uh, TED Talks as it exists today. And uh, in a few moments, I want to relate to you a quote uh, that he conveyed uh, in his book, a quote that I picked up, and I want to convey it to you and then segue into the Gospel of Luke. But just for a few moments, what is TED Talks? TED Talks is an online site with video presentations uh, ranging anywhere from uh, 15 to 20 minutes in length on a multitude of topics shared by a host of presenters. And their tagline, and this is where I really connect with them, is, Ideas Worth Spreading. Uh, TED Talks initially started as an annual conference, but now has grown in scope and influence through its online presence. And viewership is more than 100 million uh, per month, and presentations are free to watch. Uh, What does TED stand for? TED stands for Technology, Entertainment, Design. And uh, initially, talks were shaped largely around those three categories. However, over the years, it has expanded to in scope to include a wide array of ideas. And you may want to consider, if you're not acquainted with TED Talks, going to TED Talks, and they have the top, most popular uh, presentations with TED Talks, and uh, take some of those in. Uh, three examples I would just mention to you, Ken Robinson, he speaks on Do Schools Kill Creativity, a phenomenally good video to watch um, for educators, for parents, and really for all of us in terms of creativity. Or there's one by Brené Brown, The Power of Vulnerability, which has been watched by over 30 million people. And it's a very powerful presentation where she talks about the value and potential impact of being more vulnerable and more open in life, uh, doing so with her own presentation. And then there's one by Barry Schwartz, and he talks about the paradox of choice. Uh, Added choice doesn't necessarily translate into added happiness. Actually, it can be the reverse. Too much choice can paralyze us and even create frustration and unhappiness. In other words, too much abundance can actually make us unhappy as we are paralyzed by all the choices around us. As suggested in the book, there is a quote that caught my attention, uh, so much so that I printed it off and I put it on my desk just in front of me, and I relate that quote to you, and here it is says we are strange creatures, we humans. At one level, we just want to eat, drink, play, and acquire more stuff in life. But life on this treadmill is ultimately dissatisfying. A beautiful remedy is to hop off it and instead begin pursuing an idea that's bigger than you are. And I caught, well, this isn't the Bible, but it sure sounds like it. Uh, he sounds a lot like Jesus, even though there's nothing about TED Talks that's explicitly Christian. So it sounds like something that Jesus would say. Now... Through the summer, I've been reading in other places, but in terms of scriptures, I've lived in the Gospel of Luke over the last two or three months. Time of interacting with the Gospel of Luke. Why Luke? Well, it's the elective for the fall a lifetime class beginning on September the 10th. Jesus spoke of an idea that encompasses all other ideas. He's not just speaking. When we think about Jesus, he's not just speaking about a good idea. Jesus really speaks about the ideas, or the idea of all ideas. Jesus speaks of an idea which embraces all of life. Jesus speaks of an idea which provides the vision for all of life. Jesus speaks about an idea that includes life and death and life. Jesus speaks of an idea that has built within it the rudder for life. Jesus speaks of an idea that answers the question, how do I fit into the overall scheme of this world? Jesus speaks of an idea that is much, much bigger than we are in the world that we live in. It's interesting, three or four months ago I was listening to an audio presentation by Dr. Gordon Fee, who is a New Testament scholar, uh, did a lot of teaching through his years as well. Uh, he's retired now. I'm sure he's retired. He's in his 80s somewhere. And he uh, would apparently ask his class, seminary class, often he would say, what did Jesus speak about more than anything else? And you might consider that question yourself to see what's the answer that's popping up in your mind. What did Jesus talk about and speak about more than anything else? And so these students would respond with words such as love, uh, forgiveness, golden rule, uh, sin, uh, grace, even the word gospel. And uh, Dr. Fee would then respond by saying, well, these are all part of the response, but he was looking for something far more encompassing than even those very words there. There is something that Jesus spoke about in the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which is mentioned a hundred times. And when you get to the Gospel of John, he uses different language. But in the Gospel of Luke itself, it's mentioned 40 times where Jesus keeps coming with this idea and this idea and this idea and bringing it to the attention of his disciples and his followers. So... I'm not going to read all 40 passages from the Gospel of Luke, but I'm going to, I selected about a dozen, and I'm going to read them, and uh, I invite you to be listening for what is this idea? What is this idea, of all ideas, that Jesus spoke about so extensively? And um, if you don't know the answer already, three or four verses in, you'll know it right away. Um, But, as we're reading through this, the reason I want to read it all the way through is not so that you can get the answer, but so that it makes an impression about, on you to the extent to which Jesus spoke about this idea, this all-encompassing, all-embracing idea, which he repeated so frequently. So here it is, all from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, follow with me. Um, by the way, if you um, want to get these verses, I'm just going to mention them once, but on the electronic bulletin, um, these verses are listed there. Luke 4:43. But Jesus said... I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. 6.20 Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 8.10 The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. 12.31 Seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. 13, 18 through to 20. What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dome. 13, 29. People will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. 16, 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And everyone is forcing their way into it. Which is a really interesting passage of scripture. 17.20 Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that you that can be observed, Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or 18, 16. Jesus called the children to them, or to him, and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. 18.24 Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. 18.29 Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and the age to come eternal life. 22, 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then the final one, 22, 29, 30. Jesus speaking, and he says, And I confer, I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on my throne's, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, obviously, what is it? It's the kingdom of God. Yes, it's the kingdom of God. And I'm suggesting, going back to this idea from TED Talks, that the idea that ultimately embraces all other ideas, all other realities, all other concepts, is none other than the kingdom of God. So based on some of the verses that we've read here, what we say about the kingdom of God, I want to relate to you five observations. And the last one is the primary implication from the Gospel of Luke in relationship to the kingdom of God. Here is what we should do because the kingdom of God has been conferred on us. So let's look at these uh, five different statements. Number one, the kingdom of God is the rule of God. It is the rule of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I didn't read all of the verses, as I indicated from the Gospel of Luke, but right there with the story about Gabriel speaking to Mary about Jesus. The angel said, he will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. When we're talking about the kingdom of God, we are talking about the rule of God. The kingdom of God is about the reign and the rule of God, which is not only reflected here in the Gospels, but certainly, certainly in the book of Revelation as well. We see the revelation, in the book of Revelation, we see the reign and the rule of God, especially pictured in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, where we see the throne room scene of God the Father, and we also see Christ as a part of that throne room scene as well. And Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are intended to literally flow out of, or flow as a part of, the flow that started with Revelation chapter 2 and 3. 2 and 3 is the seven letters to the seven churches talking about the nitty-gritty stuff of life, including death, including suffering, including challenges, including commitment, including lack of commitment, and oftentimes, from a Christian perspective, we'll read those two chapters and sort of it's kind of the end. And now we have a whole new thought emerging with chapters 4 and 5 of God the Father and God the Son on the throne. Not intended to be read like that. It is intended to be read chapters two, three, four, and 5. And the, the impact of the throne room scene in chapters 4 and 5 is to be carried back into chapters 2 and 3 the reign of god and the rule of god in the midst of life in the here and now not just exclusively out there somewhere in the future but today right now living with the idea the conviction the mindset and the faith that the reign of god is now it's not all, it's the rule of god but it's the rule of god in the now and that really is the second point not only is it the ra- the rule of god but the second point, again, is the kingdom of God is now. So we read 17, 20, 21. Once on being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, but yet there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, the kingdom of God is with you right now. Um, CTV news overnight, whenever they introduce the news, they say, here is what is making news right now. Those of you who watch CTV, right? It's kind of like Jesus is saying here where he's talking about the kingdom of God and especially emphasizing the present the present nature of the kingdom of God. It's like Jesus is saying to his followers, here is what is happening right now about the kingdom of God. It is now in your midst and it is with you. And yes, you require eyes of faith to see it but it's all over the pages of the Gospels declaring that the kingdom of God is now. So the implication of that is there is something divine. There is something sacred about the present moment. Everything I touch, everyone I interact with, There's a sacredness about it. Is it not? You know, we are so full of the world and the physical and looking after whatever payments and looking after laundry and getting cars repaired and all that sort of stuff. But in the midst of all of that is the kingdom of God and a sacredness that Jesus is proclaiming about every moment of life. And I know it takes eyes of faith to see that and to sort of take hold of that. But there's, there's a sacredness about the reign of God, the rule of God, and even the reign of God and the rule of God. As in Revelation 4, 5, 2, and 3, the reign of God, kind of that. Speaking to Revelation 2 and 3 as well. Uh, biblically, we are invited to open our eyes and the faith to the nowness of the kingdom of God, the rule of God. In our midst, So we have the reign of God. We have the reign of God in the now, but we also clearly have the reign of God in the future as well. That clearly comes through in Scripture as well. Uh, we read 1329, People will come from east and west, <clears throat> north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Uh, that's the future. Uh, 22, 16 through to 18, For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So clearly that is in the future. That kingdom in the future will be marked by oneness, It will be marked by unity, It will be marked by peace, It will be marked by a tremendous measure of reconciliation as well. Uh, Judy and I watched a movie here over the summer a couple of weeks ago. It's a movie from 1984 entitled Places in the Heart. Uh, Set in the 1930s, Texas, with a movie including racial tensions between blacks and whites. The movie includes the killing of a white sheriff, by a young black man, and then, in turn, the lynching of that young black man. So the first 10 minutes, if you choose to borrow it from the library, is painful stuff. And yet, at the end of the movie, you have this church service. It's a Protestant church, might be a Baptist church and they're having communion service very similar to the way we would have it, and the communion tray is going up and down the pews, and people are taking <clears throat> the communion elements. And as people, and there may be initially when you see this scene, it's a small church, maybe about 50 people that are there, but as they are participating, begin to participate in the communion scene, a service, um, the the scene shifts to include not only those that were originally at the service at the beginning, but now those who have passed away, now very much alive in the pews and participating in the communion event as well, including the sheriff and seated right beside him, his killer. And they both take the communion elements Uh, Speaking words of blessing to each other, saying the peace of God to you, the peace of God to you. And then it takes it to the end of the movie. And I walked around stunned for 15 minutes and I knew what the ending was going to be. That's why I watched the movie. I wanted to see this event that happens at the ending. But it's a picture of the kingdom future. It's a picture of what the kingdom of God will be like, that people will be alive. And it's a picture of the unity and peace and health in terms of relationships with other people as well. The kingdom of God is now, it's the reign of God, it's the rule of God, uh, but it is also future and it's a dynamic that pulls us into the future as well in terms of this positive dynamic that will be there Number four, the kingdom of God is for us, believers in Jesus Christ. We are participants. Is it quite amazing these verses here that Jesus speaking to his disciples? 22, 29. I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Or 12, 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. You know, in Luke chapter 12, the context of that is really material assets, money, and uh, liberality and generosity in giving. And uh, when you do financial planning and someone sits down with you and suggests that you should put, put it would be helpful to put together a net, a net worth statement, uh, yes, we add up our, all of our assets, we subtract our liabilities, our debts, and then we arrive at our net worth. And that information is valuable in our planning in terms of what we potentially can do and equally potentially what we maybe cannot do. Is it appropriate for believers to factor into their net worth and value the kingdom of God? I think so. <laughs> the kingdom of God is being conferred on us the kingdom of God is being given to us. We are participants in the kingdom of God. And I'm not suggesting that when you actually put your net worth statement there in the computer, you write it out and you just write in, the kingdom of God is mine, but, but maybe you want to do that. You, know, you say, okay, here's my, here are my financial assets and I own this house and this cabin and these are my savings here and this is what this is, but the reality is The kingdom of God is like that in comparison to this. Would we not factor into our thinking, our spirit, our hearts, our minds, how rich we are because we are participants in the kingdom of God. You know, I read Grapes of Wrath this uh, summer. Um, I know many people have read Graves of Wrath, but through the years, I've never had an opportunity to read it. It tells the story of impoverished farm workers and laborers in the latter 1930s trying to make a go of life in California. Poverty marks the book, as does compassionate expressions of kindness, especially the poor helping the poor, especially a striking example right as the conclusion of the book. The book is fictional, but it's based on historical events of all these people, poor farmhands from Oklahoma going to California, hoping to make it rich or at least improve the circumstances of their life. Faith in Jesus Christ comes through with some of the characters, though that's not a primary emphasis of the book. Undoubtedly, in real life, most of these poor people probably never acquired much and ultimately went to their graves with a net financial worth of zero. Except for those who are believers in Jesus Christ where they had the abiding and enduring possession of the kingdom of God they died poor they died penniless but found themselves and find themselves rich in the kingdom of God so we are the we we are the participants in the kingdom of God and then the final one, and here's the primary implication, uh, when you consider all that's involved with the kingdom of God, um, this is a, an apparent one, but Jesus says it explicitly. It's, in the, it's, it's an imperative. It's in the present tense, which suggests keep on doing this. Uh, but we're to seek the kingdom of God. So Luke twelve thirty one. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you out as well. How do we seek the kingdom of God? As suggested here earlier by um, Maureen, Pastor Maureen, for starters, as little children. Chapter 18, verses 16 and 17. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will receive, who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So we come with a spirit of trust, we come as little children, and we receive the kingdom of God. But that's not to say we can't receive it also and pursue it ongoing with a great deal of intensity and passion and urgency in life, with a sense of desperate for this kingdom of God, the rule of God, in the present as well as in the future. I'm always fascinated by that and I pause for a moment when we're reading through all the verses but Luke chapter 16 verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John since that time the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. In other words people are so enamored with the idea of the kingdom of God they're clamoring to get into it. They want it. You know you have to be desperate I guess and and it's a good thing to be desperate for the kingdom of God. You know, I think about the sinner on the cross who died with Jesus, Luke twenty three forty two. It's Isn't it interesting he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't say it like that. How desperate would we be on our deathbed? There would have been such intensity in what he was saying. He was clamoring to get into the kingdom of God. There would be no casual language from a person about to die about the importance of the kingdom of God. Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. An intensity and a passion reflecting a seeking for the kingdom of God. So our role is to seek the kingdom of God and to keep seeking seeking the kingdom of God because there is so much at stake here whether we are a seeker here today and we're perhaps looking for the first time at what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God or whether we have been a saint in the Lord and walking with him for 50 years. The call with this big idea is to keep seeking the kingdom of God, an imperative that comes through in the Gospels. So the idea of all ideas is the kingdom of God it's an idea worth engaging in. It's an idea worth investing in. <clears throat> it's an idea worth wrapping one's life around. It's an idea worth promoting. It's an idea worth praying about. It's an idea worth pursuing. It's an idea worth celebrating. It's certainly an idea that is way bigger than we are. In understanding the kingdom of God and taking the hold of the kingdom of God is in part like seeing the picture of a jigsaw puzzle on the cardboard box Uh, without the picture doing the puzzle is frustrating but with the picture we have a sense of the overall direction and the kingdom is that picture for us it is the picture of all pictures it is the idea of all ideas and by its very nature it invites seeking out For you, may this be a week of seeing and seeking the kingdom of God. And more than that, may your whole life ongoing be marked as kingdom people.